All right, let's go right to John chapter number 6 this morning, considering what we've just read in that entire chapter of John 13. Uh, That was an extended reading of a text, I understand, but also sets a lot of the background to where uh, we will be going in the coming weeks. And as we think about what we've been dealing with in John chapter number 6, we have been uh, dealing with the words of eternal life. And last week, uh, we only were able to get through verse number 64, where Jesus introduced the truth that one of the disciples that was walking with him was going to betray him. And it's that context in verse 65 that leads Jesus to make, again, one of these hard sayings, one of these statements that when we hear them um, in our humanity, we begin to say, how can this be? And quite frankly, this is a, a repeating of what he says in verse 44. But look with me at verse 65 After Jesus has said, he knows who will betray him, Jesus says, And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Uh, This is a hard saying of Jesus. This is a saying that Jesus makes, and it leads the human mind to say, All right, what do I do with what Jesus just said? He's telling me that no man can come to him except that man is given by by the Father. In other words, I cannot come to God, I cannot come to Christ unless he is given to him by the Father. Again, notice the emphasis here. Jesus is speaking the words. He says, I said unto you. This is very personal. He's saying to these disciples who are standing there, no man can come. Now remember, the disciples that are here are not just the 12. Uh, These are people who are referred to, it says uh, in verse 66, from that time many of his disciples. This is referring more than just the 12. But it's this saying, this one right here, that's going to seal the deal for some of the disciples to now walk away and say, listen, that's too hard of a saying. From this on time on, we are walking away from you and we're never coming back. Whatever man believes, whatever man accepts, whether or not he accepts it or believes it, doesn't make God's truth false. Whatever you accept today or whatever you believe doesn't change God's truth. You can say today, I don't agree with that. I, 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 I believe that a man is from, from the top of his head to the sole of his feet, If he wants to be saved, it is all about his own decision. It's all about this is what I want to do. I'm deciding, I'm going to decide today, I'm going to Christ. Jesus' words refute that. His words say this is not just left up to you making a choice or a decision today. He literally says, no man can come unto me except it. What is the it? The it here is the ability or the willingness to even come to him. In other words, the Father makes us willing to come to the Son. Now, it is your free will acting because now you've been made willing. And by that willingness to believe, that is how you came to Christ. I ask you the question this morning, are you willing to come to Christ? If you have not come to Christ, today is the invitation being given to you, to every one of you, you need to come to Christ today. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to Him today. 
You say, preacher, I can't. The Bible says very clearly here, those who will come to him have been given by the Father. Don't use that as something that says, I can't. If you're willing to come, come to Christ. Be willing to come to him. This is a supernatural work. Salvation is a supernatural work. People often say, well, if Jesus said it, I'll believe it. Well, Jesus said verse number 65, and yet this is the stumbling block for so many people, even in churches today. When you combine that with verse 44, which we read a number of weeks ago, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. These sayings, these words of eternal life are words that have hung up even the most intelligent of minds who have ever lived. And yet, they're Jesus' words. The drawing of the Father is always an exercise of His sovereign will. The drawing of the Father is always an exercise of His sovereign will. It is God who is willing to save us. And therein lies the marvelous grace of God. Romans 9 gives us a bit of an insight into this topic. Romans 9 verse 11, and this is not new to us. But Paul, as he wrote there, he said, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Notice, it's not according to the purpose of the person, it's according to the works of him who calls. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Uh, men have struggled with that, and they have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. Are you getting the hint? And tried and tried and tried to make this say something that it doesn't say. Because they can't believe God actually said this. How could God in the same sentence say, I have loved to Jacob, but Esau I've hated? How can God say that? Because the human mind wrestles with these hard sayings. But then Paul asked the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Understand the context. Yes, if I pull out verse 13 and I set it by itself and I don't acknowledge it in the context, but here's what Paul is saying. He is saying that if verse 13 is not right, then God's unrighteous. In other words, he's saying if that's not what he meant, then God's a liar and it makes him unrighteous. But Paul asked the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. He says there's, in, in layman's terms, modern day vernacular, there's no way. There's no way God is, has a stitch of unrighteousness in him. People look at this verse and they say, if this is true, then I don't want any part of that God. Then you're saying there's unrighteousness with God. Again, are these easy sayings? Absolutely not. This is one of the hardest sayings in all the Word of God. People have wrestled with it because they cannot come to grips with what he's saying. But notice, Paul goes on and he says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice there is a, a difference being made. He says, I will have mercy on who I'll have mercy. In other words, it's up to my choice to have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. 
when you stand up and you proclaim this truth and you, or you claim this to be true, God has to have mercy on everybody. You're not speaking Bible truth. You're just not speaking truth. Now, we don't say that with any kind of gloating. But when you say to God, God has to have mercy on everybody, you're saying something God didn't say. God told Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Again, hard sayings begin to make people say, I don't want to serve a God who only has mercy on some and only has compassion on some. I want a God who has mercy on all and compassion on all. Then you're saying there's unrighteousness with God. You say, what does this matter with what Jesus said? Because those who went away declared Jesus to be speaking something that just couldn't be true. So, verse 16 of Romans 9, So then it is not of him that willeth, that's man, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and whom he will hardeneth, or whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? And then Paul goes on to describe, does the clay really have control over the potter? Now, if I was to tell you that in a perfectly perfect illustration, object lesson, and I've used this before, if I was to bring in a potter's wheel and a lump of clay and set the clay down in front of that and set it on the potter's wheel and tell the clay, now form it, form yourself, that clay will sit there. And it'll sit there. And it'll sit there. And it will never move. You can come 50 years from now, that clay will be dry and sitting still in the same place it was. It will never have formed itself. That means it needed a potter. It needed someone to take the clay, mold it, and make it into what it was supposed to be. God is the potter. That clay can put up no resistance. That clay is molded into whatever that, that potter makes it to be. It's the same way in our salvation. It, it is God who is the potter. God is the one that is in control of these things. Again, to us who are saved, these are not hard words. They are words of comfort. They are words that give us a reminder that I'm glad my salvation is not according to my will because left to my own will, I want nothing to do with God and I run as far away from God as I can possibly get. I don't want God in my life. But praise God, he made me willing. Then we see this verse 66 back in our text in John 6. Many of his disciples went back. These could also be referred to disciples who were what we'll refer to as at-large disciples. In other words, they were disciples in name only. Uh, they were disciples who had followed him. They had heard what he would say. Uh, they loved seeing the miracles of Jesus. But here's a truth about false professors. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But one day they will fall away. Every false professor who's a false professor today, who claims to be a professing believer today, if they're truly not, will one day fall away. Now, I don't know when it'll be, but they will eventually say, I'm gone. When we look at first, uh, look over at first John chapter number two, this has been misused in many ways over the years. But 1 John chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 18, 
John, as he's writing here about the end times to some extent, he's writing about the spirit of Antichrist that will come. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. One of the indications that we're living in the last days is Antichrists. Now, in our end time studies, we often point to one Antichrist. But you realize that that's not the way it's going to happen. Long before an Antichrist is even revealed, there will be the spirit of Antichrist. Now, what does the word Antichrist mean? It simply means directly, even from our basic English elementary school age, anti is what? Against. Against Christ. Now, what does John say these Antichrists would be? Where would you find them? Look what it says in verse 19. They went out from us. We're looking for Antichrist wandering the countryside somewhere. The Antichrists are among us. Well, that's kind of chilling, isn't it? While you're looking outside the four walls of a church, while you're looking outside the four walls for all the Antichrists to rise up, you're missing where they're going to come from. They're coming from professors, people who profess to know Christ, but they're Antichrist. He goes on, but they were not of us. Now they came from us, but they were not of us. They went out from us. They were assembled with us, but they were not of us. In other words, they sat there, they were there, but now they left us. They would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest, that's to reveal that they were not all of us. Once part of what would be referred to as the true church, they claim to be part of the true church, but now they have rejected it, they've departed from it, they show that they never truly belong. Here's the difference about the false professor and the elect. The false professor will fall away. The elect will persevere with the church. Now don't turn this down just to church membership. Okay, don't turn this back to somebody who leaves one church and the other and use this as a way to say they left us because they were not one of us. This is in the context of literally between the difference between a false professor and a real professor of Christ. People have been browbeat with this over the years, but you leave one church where well, you're never one of us anyway. Okay, you can, you can take that approach if you want, but that's not the context. He's talking about those who were part of the true church of true believers. Now they leave us, the, the Antichrists are rising up and they're coming out of professing true churches. They were said they were part of it, but they're not really part of it. These disciples that Jesus speaks of gives us a picture of what's going to happen. Those disciples back in John 6, they walked no more with him. This was not just some backslidden condition that they went away for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or a couple of years and then they came back. It says they never walked with him again. They never came back because they were never of him. Man must be made willing by a work of God before he'll come to Christ 
The truth of the matter is, of course man has a free will. Don't ever say man doesn't have a free will. However, a natural human free will left to itself with no enlightening or moving of God upon his soul will not choose Christ on his own. He just will not do it. I know we think we're capable of this, but that's where we miss the reality of just how wretched we really are. We think that I would actually choose Christ given a choice if left to myself. I wouldn't choose him. He chose me. Don't let the word choice and chosen scare you. Don't let the word election scare you. Don't let the word perseverance scare you. Don't let things say, these scare me. These are comforting words to a believer. They're hard words to some. Christ opened our eyes to the Holy Spirit, made us willing. Now Jesus... Our text says nothing more about these that went away. And I'm not trying to be smart elk about this. I'm not trying to be irreverent to this. But it's stated as a matter of fact. And it, Jesus doesn't address it. He said these disciples at large walked away. It doesn't say he went after them. It doesn't say that he begged them. He doesn't say anything about it. He said they walked away from him. And at the same time, suddenly, verse 67, Jesus says unto the twelve. Now he turns his attention and he looks at the twelve disciples. And he asks them this question. Will ye also go away? Now remember, they've seen this happen. They just saw multitudes of disciples at large walk away. And he turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to do the same thing that they just did? Are you going to walk away? The departure of this great crowd of disciples, we don't know how many it was. He turns to the twelve, he asks them if they desired to leave him also. In other words, are you willing to stand? Are you, is your desire to walk away? His question was a test. Their answer would reveal whether or not a true work of grace had been done in them. The answer to this question is whether or not God's grace has done a work in them. Not an intellectual decision making. It was not, okay, I'm making a decision right now. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm standing with you, Lord. This was a test of whether or not the divine work of God's grace had been done in them. Again, those are unpopular statements. What I just said to you, again, I make a lot of statements from this pulpit that in many Baptist churches will get me thrown out. That statement I just said will get me thrown out of many Baptist churches today. But it's truth. It's what God's Word says. We're faced with the same question. The question of the day is, has there been a divine act, a work of grace of God in your heart? The question is, will you also go away? Today we sit here, and in our human, human statement, we say, of course I'm never going away. I'm staying right where I am. But the question is, if that divine work of grace has been done in your heart, you are never going to fully fall away. You will persevere until the end. Now, again, does that mean it's always going to be at this church? Not necessarily. Am I going to stand with Christ? Or will I be as one of those antichrists which will rise up and will walk away? 
those who went away were those who had their own words of eternal life. I don't like the way Jesus is putting it, so I'm going to go with my own words. And then Peter makes the statement, verse 68, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter, by a very clear profession of faith, shows that he's a genuine disciple of Christ. The words of eternal life is a reference to true words. They're not just words that are true for the hour. They're not just words that are true for the moment. They are words that are true and will endure for eternity. True disciples of Christ will look to Jesus not just for what Christ can do for them earthly, but what he has done with them eternally. There are so many false gospels being propagated today that most gospels that are false are propagated on the premise that if you come to Christ, you're going to have earthly blessings and benefits. They think nothing about the eternal need. Listen, we just come out of Thanksgiving week. And as far as earthly benefits, we're blessed. Every one of you are blessed beyond measure. You can't measure it. You have no way to put a mark or a value. There were a few of us here on Wednesday night who talked about how thankful we were, not just for the blessings, the, the, the material blessings, but the glory and the eternal glories of God and being thankful for that. I'm thankful to have a home to go home to. I'm thankful to have a family. I'm thankful for that, there, that when I go home today, I open my refrigerator, there's food in there. All over the world, there are people who can't even do that. They have no place to go to. They have no refrigerator to open. And yet, we look at that and we say, this is the blessing of God, but it's not your greatest blessing. You can have all those things and still not have the words of eternal life. You could still be sitting here today and say, I'm a blessed person, but still not know Christ. You can have a refrigerator full and still not know Christ. The scariest churches on this planet are the churches that have stopped preaching the gospel to its church members. That's the scariest church on the planet is when we stop preaching the gospel because, folks, this is not a matter of just a few more years. This is a matter of eternity. Spiritual blessings, eternal blessings. Peter says you have the words of eternal life. He doesn't say anything about you have the words to make my life better while I'm here. He says you have the words that will truly endure for all of eternity. Had a work of grace been done in Peter's life, I think the answer without question is yes, a work of grace had been done in him because that's why he said you have him. Those who went away looked at Jesus as nothing more than just a man who occasionally did something good for him. They didn't see any of these truths. Peter acted as he usually did as a spokesman. He said, where are we going to go? Now, what's he referencing? He could have been referencing the law. We're going to turn to the law. The law doesn't save us. Shall we turn to some religious organization like the Pharisees? The Pharisees can't save us. There's nothing there but dead works and superstition. Peter's saying, where else are we going to go? To our own wisdom? To our own righteousness? We know how that's going to turn out. It's going to end up like filthy rags. And so what's John 13 have to do with all this? Jesus is talking to Peter before John 13 took place. And when John 13 takes place, what does Peter say? Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. 
Again, I believe with all my heart, I believe with all my heart that Peter had a work of grace done in his heart, but still, in his humanity, when it came time to make a decision in his own choice, guess what he chose? (laughs) I don't want anything to do with the Lord because this is going to cost me something. Folks, a work of grace in your heart doesn't mean that your humanity is not going to lead you to sometimes deny. So don't sit here today and say, I will never, ever, ever deny Christ. I will never say, I don't know him. Your humanity, you still don't realize how capable you are of still in your humanity rising up and saying, I don't even know this Christ, even though I'm part of the true church. The emboldened people who stand before people like us and say, listen, I would never deny Christ. Most of them have never, ever even faced the reality of meaning life and death if they say that they know him. The easiest profession in the world is to sit in a comfortable church on a Sunday and say, oh, how I love Jesus. This is nothing. This is what we're supposed to do. And you can't fill a church building because people don't care. They don't care. And they're not even being persecuted. I came over to this church today and I opened the front doors. And some countries I can't even do that. You open the door with the hope that people will come in who want to know this Christ. And want to worship this Christ. That's why we open the doors every time we meet together. So that anyone can come in and be welcomed in here and say, listen, I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to hear the words of eternal life. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care where you've been. I want you to come in. I want you to hear the words of eternal life. And if they come in one time and we never hear from them again, I will know this, that they heard the invitation to receive Jesus Christ. And I can get all caught up in all the things and say, well, what about this? What about this? If you are willing today to come to Christ, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is an open invitation to you. Peter speaks for all of us. We always look at Peter as the spokesman for the 12, but he speaks for us. We give Peter a hard time about all the things Peter said and then didn't stick to him. Oh, think about the list of things you said you would do. Think about how many times, even as a kid or as a young person, you made some vow before God. You got on your knees by your bed or you even walked up the stairs like we have here and you, you put your face on the on an altar and you said, boy, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do all these things. And yet, you know as well as I do, we have let so many things that we said we would do go by the wayside and it doesn't even bother us. Yet we forget that the Bible even tells us, don't make a vow unless you're going to keep it. God would rather you not say you promise him anything and, not, and, and to, to say it and not keep it. You know what? God knows about our humanity. Peter's not saying, Lord, you have the words of eternal life and I'm going to live a perfect Christian life. Be saying you have saving words. There is salvation to be found in none other. Peter's actually declaring here the whole principle of the five soul as we talk about. He's declaring Christ alone right here. You know why there's a pillar out there on the church sign with five lines? You ever looked at the church sign? 
That pillar's got five lines on it. It represents the five solas. Christ alone, faith alone, the glory of God alone. It's all about what Christ has done. It is those simple things that we take for granted. Christ has done it all. God's done it all. We, every soul that's saved is saved for the glory of God alone, not for our glory. And yet, Jesus has to ask those, will you go away? Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. He's the word of life. John 6, 63 reminded us, it is the spirit that quickeneth, that flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. The Lord Jesus himself words were, I have the words of eternal life. Those words are spoken by Jesus himself. And then look what Peter says. Now, it's interesting that Peter uses the word we. Look at verse 69. And we... We believe and are sure. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you noticed that before? How many of you noticed that that Peter is now speaking on behalf of 12? This is alarming. You you may not see this. (laughs) Peter is declaring about these 12 disciples. Jesus, all 12 of us, believe and are sure. He's speaking for all of them. It would be me standing up and I'm giving this a crude example. Someone comes into our church and I says, I say, this is our church. And I say, we believe and are sure. I'm speaking for you. I'm speaking for you because when I look around, my assumption is, and some of you by testimony, is that you are a believer. This would be Peter standing before the 11 standing behind him and he says, Lord, we are sure. We collectively believe and just for good measure and are sure about what? That thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. We collectively as a group believe you are the promised Messiah that the Old Testament talked about that you are this Christ. (laughs) And that's what makes this amazing. What Jesus says next. Notice the order here. We believe and are sure. You know what the human mind wants to say first? I want to be sure before I believe. I mean, you think about our typical plans of salvation that we've grown up around. It's backwards. It's always, I want to be sure before I put my faith in this God. I want to be sure I understand what all this is before I believe. The reason you're sure is because you believe. There's a tremendous difference in what I just said. He doesn't say we're sure and believe. He said we believe and are sure. But again, he's speaking for for collective 12 people. God reverses man's order. Man's order is, be sure. Are you sure now you want to be saved? You sure? Now, time to believe. Mm-mm, it's not the way it works. It's impossible to, sure, to be sure or to have assurance or confidence until you believe. 
Folks, the reason I'm so confident about my eternal home, the reason is because I believe. I don't know how else to spell this out. I have 0% concern about my eternal soul. Not because anything that I did, but because all of what Christ has done for me. I am putting my eternal soul completely and utterly in the hands of Jesus Christ. Nothing about what I've done, nothing about what I will do, all because it's in Christ alone. We believe, Peter says, that thou art that Christ, the prophesied, promised, and even the one we have a picture of throughout the Old Testament. We believe that you are God. You know what they were actually believing? We're actually believing you are God in human flesh. Because that's what Jesus was. That's what Jesus is. God robed in human flesh. Can I tell you, most people who Jesus interacted with didn't even believe that. That's why you say, oh, I'm a, you run into somebody in your day-to-day life who says, I believe in Christ as my Savior, but I do not believe that he was incarnated. They're not believers. You say, brother, that's harsh. They prayed a prayer and asked God to save them. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ was the incarnated Son of God, then your faith is founded on nothing. If you don't believe in the Trinity, your faith is founded on nothing. If you don't believe in the blood of Christ, your faith is founded on nothing. And if all, you're putting your eternal soul on nothing more than what you prayed, you're in serious trouble. It better be more than just your words. You better have the words of eternal life, which are Christ's words. And there is a difference. There's a tremendous difference. And then Jesus says the most alarming thing I think he could have possibly said to them. Peter confidently says, Lord, we, we believe and are sure. We're not going anywhere. I, I don't think we understand how close these disciples would have been. These disciples would have spent much time with Judas. They attended events with Judas. They would have found themselves in the same sleeping quarters with Judas. They would have found themselves interacting with Judas. They would have found themselves doing all these things. Peter is speaking for Judas Iscariot when he says, we believe and are sure. He was including Judas Iscariot, the one we read about in John 13, that Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and the one that I give the bread to, that's him. In John 13, they were alarmed John 6, they would have been alarmed because they would have said, wait a minute. We're all believers here. We're all sure. Jesus says, have not I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? Now, specifically, he's talking about the choice here is not the choice of salvation. Specifically, in the true context, he's talking about I've chosen you to be 12 disciples. Now, again, we know salvation is God's choice, but we also see that he's speaking contextually about the choice of a disciple. He chose them not only to that office, earthly office of this apostleship, but he also chose them to eternal life. Yet one of them, Judas Iscariot, was an informer. We refer to him today, he's a mole. He was on the inside. He was an instrument of the devil. Now again, let's, let's, let's talk about this and we may look at this more next week. Don't ever preach and teach 
that Satan infiltrated the 12 disciples. That Judas got in secretly. You know what's going to floor you? Is when you read the Bible and realize that the prophecies all taught that Judas was ordained from the foundation of the world to be the informer. Because everybody says, oh no, Judas was, had good intentions and Judas was this, and yet Judas was a fulfillment of Scripture prophecy. Jesus is speaking so much more here than what we allow to happen. He was a son of perdition, he's referred to. He was ordained from the very beginning that this would be a man who would be the one who in the proper time, according to God's timing, not Satan's timing, And don't ever believe a preacher who says that Jesus Christ was the ransom paid to Satan. You're in a false church. Get up and leave. I'm serious. If you find it that Jesus Christ, someone says that the the ransom was required to be paid to Satan, you're under a false teacher. Satan was not in control of any of this situation. So it makes the glory of what Christ has done for you so much more amazing. We act like God let go of control. He willingly, willfully, voluntarily went to the cross and did this. Psalm 41.9, David's writing about this, but it's a, it's a, it is a prophecy. David is a type of Christ throughout the scripture. David, speaking of Saul, I believe here, he says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Saul, of course, was a friend at one time to David. But this is an image of betrayal. Christ quoted this verse with regard to his betrayal by the apostle Judas in John 13, 18, when we read Jesus was quoting Psalm 41, 9, when he talked about the betrayer. There's also a verse in Zechariah. It's a book you may have a little bit difficulty finding. But Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. The Bible, actually go back to verse 11 of Zechariah 11. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, if ye think good... Give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Sound familiar? And the Lord said unto me, Cast it into the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. That casting down is a gesture of disgust over the inadequate of the wage, 30 pieces of silver. The prophets being paid off for 30 pieces of silver points to Christ who was betrayed for that exact amount. It's not there by coincidence. There are people stand up and preach in pulpits and they say something like this. Let me point you to a couple coincidences. (laughs) There's no coincidences anywhere in the Bible. Well, isn't that ironic? 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah and Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver Betrayer in Psalm 41 and betrayer Judas. Wow, what a coincidence. There are no coincidences with God. 
There are no things that are happening by accident. There are nothing where this is kind of like uh, uh, you're, you're, you're taking me over or, or suddenly Jesus is losing the battle. And then Jesus' own words in John 17, verse 12, tell us this. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. Who's he referring to? He's referring to, Ju- he's referring to Judas. The son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Christ secured and preserved his own, even though many other disciples fell away. Now, let's understand, the son of perdition is also an expression used, but here's what kind of will blow you away. It's an expression used for those who are set for ruin. Was Pharaoh set for ruin, or did he by his own choice fall? According to what Romans said, Pharaoh was set up for ruin. He was set up that the glory of God might be seen. Judas was ordained by, before the council of the God, before the foundation of the world, to be the betrayer. The apostasy of Judas had been prophesied centuries earlier. Folks, we have got to get this in our mind. Even the worst things that happened to Christ were all predestined by God. And you say, that, that, that horror that took place at the cross, my mind can't grasp that. What your mind can't grasp is not the horror of the cross. What your mind can't grasp is that was your fault and my fault. Now, it's one thing to look at the horror, the details of the cross, and it is, it's horrific. But if you miss the reality that the reason that everything that was predestined by God the Father before the foundation of the world was being done for his own, his elect was being done for his own children, that every mark, every spear, every pluck, every nail, every drop of blood was being done for you and because of your sin. Suddenly, this doesn't just become an event in history. You know, some of you talk about the cross and they say that was a really bad day for Jesus. Again, I'm not trying to be irreverent. But that's how some people view it. They say, boy, that was a bad day for him. I tell you right there, you have no idea what that day was for Jesus because that was not about Jesus. That was not about what he had done. That's about the wretchedness of our own sin and why you need a Savior. And that Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And by the way, the only sacrifice. Yet here's Judas, the one who would deliver Jesus up at the appointed time. John 6, 71 tells us, He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Now what's interesting is, John does not tell us that Jesus pointed him out here. John 13 does. But do you see what happened here? Do you understand that here's these twelve disciples that from this time, and it's for a little while longer, The 12 disciples are all wandering together and they're now moving from place to place and Jesus has told them, I've chosen all 12 of you as a disciple, but one of you is a devil. Can you imagine what was going on in their midst? 
There's not many more than 12 of us here today. It would be like me saying that. One of you is a devil. One of you is, one of you is a betrayer of Christ himself. Sometimes small numbers are good to think about. Count off 12 people and say one of you is one that's going to betray the Lord. It's pretty, it's pretty frightening when you think about it. And yet, all of them, by Peter's admission, were believers. We're all with you. Peter, the spokesman, later, after all this starts to unfold, will deny the Lord three times, just like Jesus tells him in John 13. Judas will be revealed as the betrayer. When Jesus goes to the cross, all the disciples flee except for John, who the Bible, if you didn't catch that, and a lot of people get offended by that, it says something about John, whom Jesus loved. They say, well, what about the others? Didn't Jesus love them? I'm just telling us what it says. He has a whole interaction with Peter later. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course you know I love you. He keeps asking him the question, but Peter, do you love me? He was asking him something much more than that brotherly love. He was asking him about that agape love, that, that real love. We'll see if we examine this further, these two verses, 70 and 71, next week. But folks, there will always be people who believe they possess eternal words of life or words of eternal life. A false professor, a false disciple who has not put complete trust in the words of eternal life spoken by Jesus is a false professor. We are so afraid of offending believers that we're afraid to actually speak the true words of eternal life. We speak and we water it down. Baptists about 100 years ago stopped using words election. They stopped using the words predestination. They stopped using the words for, for knowledge. They stopped using sovereignty. They stopped using purposes of God. Or they started changing the meanings. You know why? Because their human mind couldn't grasp it. They didn't like the word foreknowledge meaning to determine beforehand. They liked the word foreknowledge to mean God just knows what you'll do. You see, what, you see the difference? I grew up in a church that believed the latter. Foreknowledge is just God knowing what we'll do. Well, doesn't God already know everything now? Doesn't God already know everything that's going to happen? Of course he does. But what's more offensive? God's going to wait and see what I do because he knows what I'm going to do, or God has predetermined what will be done. He's predetermined, predestined. Sovereignty of God. I, now Baptist churches believe this. We believe God is sovereign in everything except salvation. Then he's not sovereign. Do you see what's happening? And these are in professing churches. And again, it's not my job to determine whether you're saved or not. You know, people come and ask me that question. Preacher, I, I want to ask you, do you believe I'm saved? I have no answer for that. I can't tell you that. You say, preacher, have you been around false professors before? Yes, I have. But you know what? In Christian love, what we do, we just mark them as they're just backsliders. They're just, they're just away from God. 
It never crosses our mind that maybe they were never actually a real believer. Maybe, just maybe, they were there and they went away. What do we do? Someone who's a backslider, I don't pray for their repentance. I pray for their salvation. I pray for their conversion. Because I'm telling you right now, this will not be popular. This, this might even make some of you dislike me. You cannot be a professor of Christ and stay away. You can't. People have left this church over that, what I just said. That reason. You can't, you can't. We like that comfortable Christianity that says I can be a believer of Christ because I pray to prayer and I can stay home every time the doors of church are open. I don't have to have my life changed at all. I don't have to go and worship the Lord corporately, even though I'm told to go and worship God together. I don't have to do that because I, I prayed that prayer. I'm saved. And you're, you are falsely misled. People come in and ask questions about Marriage. You ask questions about their marriage and why aren't things going well. And one of the one of the top things is that they have no communication. They don't talk together. They don't spend any time together. I want to fix the marriage. Well, you put them back together. You say, hey, if you love this person, you're going to want to be with this person. You're going to spend time with this person. You want to communicate with this person. People say we love Jesus. We love everything about it. We love our church. We love this, and yet we're never there. But we love Jesus. We love him. Really. And I've been accused of that. Preacher, you're just there because we pay you. You're just there because you're the pastor. You have to be there. If that's the only reason I'm here, you should fire me today because it's no reason for me to be here. Because I can tell you right now, humanly speaking, there's 300 other things I'd rather do. I'm just being honest with you. This is not about some kind of earthly thing. This is about what God has called us to be and to do. You do not have to twist the arm of a believer to worship God. You don't have to put gimmicks out there to say, come in to our carnival. You know, preacher, we could grow this church if we would just loosen up and lighten up and, and put some fun things out there. Put a bouncy house in the front and we'll get all the kids in the neighborhood. They're doing it all over this country. And I'm more, frankly, I am more concerned that your family as a whole, whatever your family is, whether you're an individual or you're a couple that's an empty nest or whether your kids are gone or you've still got kids at home, I am more concerned about your family being doctrinally sound and settled and knowing what the true words of eternal life are than trying to get into some kind of entertainment business to say, let's take the Lord's house and turn it into something just to attract a crowd. Jesus had throngs of people following him. But the moment he started speaking the true words of eternal life, people bailed. And I'm not trying to be mean, but people bailed when this church started preaching the true words of eternal life. Some of you remember. Folks, we have lost 70% of this congregation from when I got here. And it all can be traced back when we started preaching the true gospel. That's when it all happened. People got offended and walked because they said, I don't like what Jesus is saying. I refuse to believe this. And what's my prayer for every single one of them? That they would truly be, that they are truly converted, they're truly saved. But folks, this is not a game. I'm not here to entertain. I'm not here to try to make things uh, comfortable. 
I believe this is a nice place to come to church. It's not the newest of new. It's not the high tech of high tech, but it's a wonderful place to come because I can take you to places where missionaries are being shot, missionaries are being killed, and we're worried about all the temporal things that don't matter. They don't matter. But I beg of you and I desire with all my heart for your family to be established and your family to be doctrinally sound. And that so you can go home and you can sit down with your family and you can give them the true words of eternal life. You can speak to them and you can pray with them and you can say, listen, we know the true gospel. And no, that little church over there on Petrie Road may never be the biggest church in town. But one thing I know when I go over there, I know I'm going to hear the truth. And I'm not going to grow discouraged every time I don't see people stay and I don't see this and I don't see that. Folks, you think, you think I don't want to see every one of these, these pews filled? You think I wouldn't love it to have to tell Jerry Neal to bust out that back wall again? I would love to have to do that. That poor man took that wall up and down twice. But you know what? When you start preaching the truth, I understand things. I understand how this works. And again, this is not part of the message. This is, I'm talking to our church because this is our church here today. This is our church. There are a lot of things humanly speaking I'd love to see. But if it requires compromise and it requires us to be something that's not what God teaches, then I don't want any part of it. I just don't. You know why? Because I want the words that are preached here and spoken here to match up with what Jesus says and what the Word of God says. But I also know the Bible clearly teaches us you've got to be, if you've got to be, and again, this is not painting this with one brush, but just because an entire crowd is going one way doesn't mean the crowd's going the right way. And folks, it breaks my heart when I have a family come into me and say, listen, we're just going to go somewhere else because you just don't have enough for us. When the word of God doesn't become enough, your family's in trouble. I watched families as a teen director, a youth pastor, which I wish I never would have done. If I go back and undo one thing in my life, I wish I never would have been a youth pastor. Because I tell you, I messed up more people doing that than anything. But I want you to understand something. When you have a family come in and a family tells you, listen, we're, we, our, our 13, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, I heard even younger than this, our 10-year-old likes the church over there better. We're going to go there. Where in the world is the husband and father leadership at? Where in the world is the father saying, listen to the, to the, the family, listen, this is what we need the truth And by the way, if you're leading your family right, this is not the only time they're getting the truth. They're getting the truth at home because they know mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, whatever your situation is, they stand for the truth and I'm speaking the truth at home. I'm only backing up what I hear at church. I'm only backing up what I'm hearing. And folks, hopefully what I'm doing is I'm backing what you're telling your family up. These words of eternal life, they're not meaningless words. And again, I realize I've gone well beyond what Jesus was speaking here, but I'm just trying to share with you just a little bit of my heart this morning about these things. But we've got to remember that those disciples that went back certainly did not possess those words of eternal life. When God's work of grace does a work in the life and the soul of a person, 
It turns the heart from the idols that it used to serve to serve the living God. And before we begin determining who or what and where and what we're right and where they're wrong and where these things are, let's understand something. The only thing that's going to matter, again, is what did you think of Christ? The question of the judgment seat will not be what church did you belong to. It's not on the list. How do you know that, preacher? Have you seen the list? No, it's just it doesn't talk about it in the Bible. I read passages like, depart from me, I never knew you. And if you think that that phrase is not going to be used to people who thought they were in, I'm telling you, if you're trusted in anything else, anything else other than Christ alone, you're on sinking sand. Folks, I believe, and we talked about this a little bit this morning, until we as a church begin to understand how important it is for this church to get 100% doctrinally set and sound, and we're not there yet. We're not. But we're working on it. Because you can't even build a church. You can't even begin to see anything happen until you have a congregation who knows what they believe and they're sure of what they believe. It's not going to shock me one bit. It's not going to shock me one bit over the months and the years that come. It's not going to shock me one bit to find a church member. And it may not be you who's going to come and say, you know what, I was never saved. But I want to be saved now. Christ has saved me now. That's why if you don't like hearing the gospel, you're going to be in the wrong church. You say, can't you just give us more relative things like how to do with our finances? and how to? It's all in here. Do you know that? It's all in this book. It's all there. Preach doesn't preach on that. If all you're getting is what I'm feeding you, you're starving. Severely starving. Because I can't even give you enough. This will scare you to death. If I had it my way, we'd have church every day. We would. Because I can't get it all. I could preach today for 12 hours and I still could not get it all. I leave this pulpit every single Sunday and Wednesday thinking there's so much more we need to preach on. There's so much more we need to talk about. There's so many more things I need to just express to you what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. And I don't have time for it all. But you know what? It goes, it goes back to what Jesus was saying. What do you think about me? And that's the question today. What do you think about Christ? I'm just naive enough to believe you could dislike the preacher and still get saved. I, <laughs> I, it's got to be got to be the right personality. I don't see it anywhere in the Bible. I don't think any of these preachers. I don't think any of these preachers in the Bible could even have a church because I don't think anybody could stand them. And if you think people would have flocked to Paul and flocked to Jeremiah, and read Jeremiah. That's what Wednesday nights, I'm telling you, it's the hardest book I've ever preached through, and I'm doing it again. And I'm like, this poor guy, I don't know why he didn't just quit. <laughs> Everything he said got discarded and thrown away. People heard it and said, whatever. But you know what? It's words of eternal life we keep preaching and we keep saying it. I'll stop there before I get myself in trouble. Let's stand. We'll pray and be dismissed.